resiliency lesson 101 is that you win with a combination of localization and diversification. We have to give credit to China's industries and policymakers for building such durable advantages. So one challenge that the IRA creates is that the world needs China's expertise more than ever. And instead of giving the stiff arm to China, would we have been better placed to have an open invitation to allow Chinese companies to access North America markets on the condition of technology transfers to therefore allow us to go further faster on our decarbonization agendas while still strengthening our domestic economy. Welcome to Sustainability Leaders. I'm Michael Torrance, Chief Sustainability Officer with BMO Financial Group. On this show, we will talk with leading sustainability practitioners from the corporate, investor, academic, and NGO communities to explore how this rapidly evolving field of sustainability is impacting global investment, business practices, and our world. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Welcome back to another episode of Sustainability Leaders. I'm Katie Shooter, and I'm a climate change and sustainability analyst with the BMO Climate Institute. I'm very excited to be wrapping up our three-part series on EVs in today's episode, where we'll focus on the implications of the Inflation Reduction Act on the EV transition and the importance of building out robust supply chains. This podcast also comes at the head of the Government of Canada's Fall Economic Statement, which was just released on November 3rd. The statement underlines the implementation and the scope of the Canada Growth Fund and how financing tools will be used to attract private capital to climate and energy spending, and also ultimately strengthen new or existing climate tech value chains. This is one of the Government of Canada's first responses to the Inflation Reduction Act and attempts to ensure that Canada has a competitive position Position in the energy transition. So this upcoming podcast will be timely and give some food for thought in this context. So with that, I'm joined by Nathan Neese, a partner and associate director with BCG and is BCG's global lead for electric vehicles. We'll be talking about the IRA and what it means for Canada. So to kick us off, Nathan, thank you for being here. Could you tell our listeners about your role at BCG and what sort of work that you engage in? Yeah, thanks, Katie. We've got a hot topic to discuss today, and I'm really looking forward to the discussion. Briefly on myself, I have the privilege of leading BCG's electric vehicle and energy storage topics globally for the company. And BCG, or Boston Consulting Group, is a global consulting firm working across industries and sectors to advise clients on their most strategic business challenges. The energy transition and adoption of electric vehicles and other energy storage machines are areas where we're particularly active. We partner with corporates across the value chain, as well as governments and institutions on knotty questions in these sectors, such as how to enter and win as a new cell manufacturer or battery recycler. Are there attractive financial returns to be had in battery equipment manufacturing? How to manage a supply chain where secure access to materials is becoming particularly critical? And it's really that last question that's risen to number one on the minds of battery-based businesses and, and electric vehicle manufacturers over the past year. I'm also honored to be leading BCG's organizing role in LiveBridge this year, and it's through that alliance that we've been tasked with outlining the needs, challenges, and recommendations to build a robust battery supply chain in the U.S. and with its partners. 
And uh, speaking of robust supply chains, a part of the reason why we had the opportunity to chat was this really amazing deck that we read from BCG outlining the implications of the Inflation Reduction Act for the the energy sector, including um, policies that would improve the economics of low carbon technologies, EVs and EV infrastructure. So again, for our listeners, could you just give everyone a breakdown of what the IRA set out to do and how it has impacted the future of the EV transition in, in your view? Long term, the IRA is a significant, significant uplift for EV adoption in the U.S. and for building a more secure domestic battery supply chain. Full stop. I'd say there is still much to be clarified in the IRA's implementation rules before all the intricacies are truly understood. But let's just kind of take a step back, unpack the pieces of the IRA with respect to electric vehicles and batteries first. There's nearly $480 billion in new climate and energy spending approved in the last 12 months in the US. You have 370 billion or so in the IRA, plus then 110 billion in climate and energy infrastructure spending as part of last year's Infrastructure Investments and Jobs Act. Of that total, nearly $40 billion of spending is earmarked for transportation. And the lion's share of that is for on-road passenger and commercial vehicles and EV charging. So, I mean, to keep description simple, I'll continue to reuse the word EV, but all of this discussion also applies to, to hydrogen-based vehicles as well. And so there's really a three-part answer as to the purpose of the EV and battery portions of the IRA. One, it seeks to drive adoption of zero emission vehicles in line with the administration's stated goals for electric vehicles to make up 50% of all new vehicles sold in the US by 2030. Second, it seeks to spur domestic production and manufacturing for EVs, batteries, and battery materials here in the US or in North America. And third, it seeks to provide a stable decade-long policy signal for businesses in which to make long-term investment decisions. So that's kind of a long wind up before even saying what's included in the IRA. Uh, of which there's many pieces. The, the first is there's a, a point of sale incentive for EV buyers. The second is that there are production tax credits for battery supply chains on the order of $35 per kilowatt hour for cell manufacturers. And then the third kind of major part of what's included is there, there are investment tax credits for greenfield and brownfield manufacturing projects as well as for the installation and procurement of equipment for EV charging stations. Where it really gets interesting is in the qualifying requirements. There are income level limits for buyers. There's an MSRP limit for cars, SUVs, and trucks. There's domestic content requirements that ramp up year over year. There's knockout criteria if any part of the battery is sourced from what's called a foreign entity of concern of which China and Russia notably fall on that list. And so it's with all that, those qualifying criteria is that as the first hours and days of reviewing that text by industry, it was really an, an emotional roller coaster for battery and EV sectors and, and for customers. Regardless of, of kind of where we shake out on that spectrum, the strategic implications for businesses are just massive. It, it accelerates production plans, it's forcing a complete rethink of supply chain partnerships and the attractiveness of participating in certain profit pools. There's a whole host of considerations on what to do about pricing and more. 
So the Climate Institute recently, we published a report on EVs and we picked up on findings around this idea of carbon parity, that the production of EVs is more carbon intensive than gas powered vehicles. And one way to, quote, solve that is through cleaner grids. And, you know, for our listeners, this is often referred to as carbon parity in the space. It's the it's the break even point in time when EVs become cleaner than a gas powered car. So on a cleaner grid, it's about a year. And on a dirtier grid, it's upwards of five years. So I was wondering what sort of provisions in the IRA you think are advancing a cleaner grid in the U.S.? And given how clean Canada's grid is, do we have anything to learn from this? Great question. I spoke about the $40 billion in in transportation-related spending, but there's something that is six times larger in terms of carbon-free energy focused on, on the grid, which is renewables, nuclear, electricity, and other items. And so kind of playing that those incentives through or, or the impact of the tax credits, you're lower, lowering the, the levelized cost of energy on a dollar per megawatt hour basis for solar, for wind, for storage and nuclear by up to 60% in some cases, which is just a massive spur to greening the grid faster than we would have otherwise done. And that's where Canada's ahead, especially in certain provinces. It's also an interesting point because it's cheaper for customers to charge their EV on a cleaner grid because electricity rates on a, on a cleaner grid tend to be lower on average. Well, we're in a world in which volatility of energy prices, especially out of Europe, is going to be a major, major question. And so clean energy being lower cost and hopefully having a greater level of stability in terms of what it means for the grid will be just incredibly important to providing a good experience for those that transition to EVs to, to not feel that they're being caught with surprises when they're going to the equivalent of, we always say at the pump, but in this case, it's, it's at the charging station or at, in their homes when they plug in. Yes, exactly. So to your point earlier about strategic implications, so the IRA, something that I really liked about the IRA and that the, the Climate Institute really liked about the IRA was that there needs to be a strategic approach to net zero from a from that competitive value chain perspective. And uh, I heard this from somebody a few weeks ago, and it really stuck with me that we have, at least in Canada and maybe the US, you know, we have a lot of ingredients on the table. So we have an EV strategy or a hydrogen strategy, but those ingredients don't necessarily add up to a whole meal. So I think your work at Lybridge really resonates resonates with this thinking. So could you speak to that work and the importance of building out those robust supply chains for the transition? Your analogy really resonates with me, Katie. I mean, not everyone likes to use the words industrial policy, but that's really what we now have with the IRA. And we need it to work as one cohesive policy that looks and tastes like a complete meal. There's lots of work to still be done versus resting on the laurels of what the IRA has done. And I firmly believe it will be alliances such as Lybridge that can deliver where U.S. industry and government has fallen short previously. I mean, Lybridge was consciously established to bring together companies from mining through to EV and stationary storage production. And it's over that the past year that that alliance has developed recommendations that are really focusing on addressing the gaps holding the U.S. or North America back from global competitiveness. So an uncompetitive U.S. battery industry or North American battery industry puts the whole region's decarbonization agenda in peril. The wait time to access a pilot line to test or validate and qualify new battery materials can stretch up to over a year in, in North America, whereas China and Europe have a 
a robust pilot line network with wait times less than a month. Battery recycling could be so much more cost effective if the standards were harmonized across jurisdictions. The list goes on and, and the to-do list is not entirely unique to the US. And so now it's about translating those ideas to action and with speed. The enthusiasm from industry as a part of Libridge to band together to affect real change was just, just infectious. That's really exciting. And I completely agree earlier. I know that we're, you know, we're excited about what's to come, but that there is still this sentiment that there is lots of work to be done, particularly in Canada, I think. So this leads me to my next question, which is given the content requirements in the IRA, at least I think it was at least 50% of EV materials and components must be sourced from North America or from a U.S. trading partner. So there will be obviously a lot of motivation for Canada to develop a robust EV and critical minerals value chain. So with that, do you think Canada is in a good position to capitalize on this opportunity or is there a lot more work to be done? It's no coincidence that as it relates to to battery materials and global advantage and trade, that some of our foremost experts within BCG actually reside in Canada. I mean, Canada is a major, major part of the next chapter of EVs and batteries. But Canada can't rest on its laurels, I'd say, for a handful of reasons. The the first is customer demand for for EVs. EV adoption actually needs to, to really jump. On the raw material side, more Canadian deposits can be assessed and developed. On the R&D side, I mean, production and technology innovations will need to be found that stretch from mineral extraction to recycling to continue to lower battery costs and improve business cases. The fourth one is, is investors. I expect the phones of Canadian battery players and potential EV manufacturers that their phones have been ringing off the hook since the IRA was passed due to Canada's favored status as a free trade agreement country. And then lastly, the government. Canada may need to match the production tax credits offered by the U.S. because I expect those players who announced battery, material, and cell manufacturing plants that they would plan to site in Canada pre-IRA, they might be reevaluating their their decisions to select Canada over the U.S. So in, in summary, I'd say now is the moment for Canada to take big moves to be a more central player in the EV and the battery ecosystem. So you mentioned earlier China and Russia, and I hear about this quite often. So in Canada, there's mounting concern that Canada's critical mineral sector has an over-reliance on China and Russia, and there isn't enough of a focus on expanding domestic infrastructure and supply. And one of my colleagues had a really great example of how this problem escalates, and it was when she worked in South Africa. So one of the barriers to scale It's called South Africa's Renewable Independent Power Producer Program. One of the barriers to scaling that program was that the country didn't develop a manufacturing sector to supply all the renewable energy projects that were being developed. So while the program was still successful, it wasn't as successful as it could have been because they needed to rely so heavily on imported parts from China. And that made them really vulnerable to supply and pricing issues. And there were obviously governance issues too, but those issues are less comparable to North America. And so failing to create a manufacturing sector to supply the low carbon transition is definitely an issue for us. So with that example in mind, what's your view on the implications of this reliance on China and Russia, just for the EV value chain and also for Canada's economy more broadly? Resiliency lesson 101 is that you 
win with a combination of localization and diversification. I think there's little reason to believe that geopolitics related to China and or Russia are going to get simpler in the months or years ahead. And we're seeing that decoupling of clean technology supply chains from, from China in particular is no overnight task. We have to give credit to China's industries and policymakers for building such durable advantages. So one challenge that the IRA creates is that the world needs China's expertise more than ever. And instead of giving the stiff arm to China, would we have been better placed to have an open invitation to allow Chinese companies to access North America markets on the condition of technology transfers to therefore allow us to go further faster on our decarbonization agendas while still strengthening our domestic economy. That's essentially a reverse play to what China did over the last few decades to build its domestic auto industry. It's water under the bridge now, but it's, it's an interesting thought exercise in terms of the role of China. Turning to back to Liebridge, so you'd mentioned in, in previous conversations before this podcast that Liebridge was producing a report with several recommendations to build out EV infrastructure. So could you just elaborate on what some of those recommendations are? Yeah, and I think they tie back to the, to the last question quite well in terms of what are the, the specific recommendations that are needed to, to start to decouple from, from China, Russia, and, and have a more localized, robust supply chain. The report's going to come out here at the end of the year, so don't want to provide all the answers, but I think the, the five major themes are, one, improve investment attractiveness to actually catalyze new capacity investments in North America. The second piece of that stool is to support product and business model innovation to allow companies to accelerate paths to commercialization here. The third is all around securing access to materials, both ones that are in the ground within the region, as well as through preferred partnerships overseas to reduce the risk of supply chain disruptions. The fourth item, and, and often underlooked, is investing in people and, and supporting infrastructure to enable the North America battery industry to, to actually have its growth. And then our, our fifth one is to meet several of those prior points a U.S. only or a North America public-private alliance such as Liveridge needs to be in place for years to come because so many of those solutions that are required actually sit at the intersection of the public side, so government involvement, plus then industry being at the table and helping drive forward change. You've mentioned a couple of times this idea of investing in, in people, and I think you had mentioned it earlier. Do you mind expanding on, on that point, if you can? Every step of the supply chain, from mining to those anodes, cathodes, to cell manufacturing, to EV manufacturing, we need tens and hundreds of thousands of jobs for that industry. We need a completely different curricula and series of training programs that allow people to know how to, to thrive when they're coming to their jobs every day. And we need a pipeline that continues to allow us to have competitive leadership going forward in terms of companies that are innovating and choosing to innovate here versus to do it somewhere overseas.
And the recent Climate Institute report, we did explore this need to upskill and, and retrain frontline sales staffs, at least in, in auto dealerships is where we focused. I think it was the maintenance requirements alone of EVs require computing and software knowledge, and it's really needed for the auto dealerships to keep their businesses competitive since so many OEMs are moving toward online direct sales. And this is just one business out of the whole auto servicing industry. So it's it's really poignant that you know, upskilling and retraining is going to be needed across the board. Just as such a small component of auto dealerships, and it's going to impact their margins so much. I can't imagine what it'll be like if you spread that example across the entire auto economy. So it's a great point. I love your point, because just to take that one step further, I spoke kind of primarily about manufacturing jobs. But further downstream, if you think about maintenance of EV chargers, of first responders and fire rescue, if there happens to be a safety issue related to, to batteries on the road. Even transporters of batteries over, because they're considered in, in some of localities hazardous materials. And so how to do that safely for logistics companies. There's just so many different parts of our economy that are being touched with as you participate in, in EVs and batteries, a, a lot of new learnings are gonna be required. Exactly. So. The Inflation Reduction Act consists of what commentators are calling all carrots, no sticks. But in other ways, the IRA will actually strengthen regulations like the Environmental Protection Agency or the EPA, uh, which is a, a rulemaking body that carries a lot of sticks. So in your view, what are the catalysts to accelerate the EV transition? Will it be mostly incentives like folks are suggesting, or do we still need some sticks? I'd also say it's, it's not entirely fair to say that the IRA is only carrots. Those qualifying criteria for incentives do bear some degree of burden, given U.S. industry is behind on its production learning curve, which results in higher landed costs. Nevertheless, if we're successful in our mission, I believe the U.S. would see the cost-benefit trade-off of these IRA dollars as a winning proposition 100 times over. The alternative, a do-nothing scenario, would have had the North America battery industry go the way of semiconductors or solar panels. That is, essential products that get manufactured overseas and are imported on a massive scale. The recently passed $50 billion CHIPS Act shows just how expensive it is to reshore an industry after it has matured. And so of that $40 billion for, for transportation in the IRA and the infrastructure bills, you can put a large portion of that price tag at the feet of prior sessions of Congress and administrations for their delay and, and uncertainty in acting. But to your point, I mean, the US EPA or rulemaking bodies of individual states and provinces are also critical to set a steadily increasing floor that is in line with our climate goals. So on the topic of the EPA, what sort of other domino or secondary effects do you think the Inflation Reduction Act will have on existing laws, policies, or incentives that are currently affecting the EV transition? Faster EV adoption and the domestic build-out of supply chains are, are very good things, but they are going to bring their next set of challenges that we must deal with in turn. The grid is aging and it's ill-prepared. And it's going to prove to be the, a long pole in the tent with respect to increasing the availability of public and private charging and or to bring some of those new production facilities online. We're bringing to bear a whole new manufacturing sector that's going to invite careful 
review to ensure that those facilities that are producing clean technologies are not locking in processes and footprints that themselves are emission intensive. And so the EPA will be a critical partner in ensuring also that the, the fossil fuel-based facilities that are closed are properly decommissioned. It's like we're, we're seeing the fingerprints of a future EPA agenda all over this IRA. And so I'd say it's, it's a common theme throughout our discussion here that there's lots of work ahead for the EPA as well. Much of it is known, but we should also expect a few surprises as well, both within what the EPA does in terms of what companies continue to do and, and hopefully continue to, to have strong support from our political leaders in chasing after our climate objectives. When do you think, in your opinion, when do you think we will start seeing the impacts of the IRA? And I, and I asked that because I recently read that, you know, building processing plants for a lot of critical minerals that are mentioned in the IRA can take upwards of four or five years. And, you know, these things won't happen overnight. So what do you think the IRA will do for 2030 net zero targets or for the 2030 to 2035 EV mandates that are placed in a lot of states in the U.S. and in Canada? Yeah, great question. As much as we would love to have it have instant impact, it's likely to be rather muted for 2023 through 2025, other than it gets that drumbeat really going. And it's because of, of your point, just the amount of steel and concrete that needs to be put in the ground to build the new facilities here to really spur lower cost and more localized manufacturing is going to take time. A cell manufacturing plant could be on the average of three years. Those battery material plants, as you outlined, four to five years. And it's those upstream raw material projects, at least in the U.S., are averaging eight, ten, or, or even more than that in terms of the amount of time it takes to develop. So we're really talking about many of the impacts for the IRA being felt in the later half of this decade and beyond. Without the IRA, BCG's forecast suggested that the U.S. would not have been able to meet the Biden administration's 50% electric vehicle goal and therefore be out of, out of lockstep with its stated climate objectives. With the IRA, it's almost exactly in line when, you, when we kind of think about the adoption curve and, and the costs, that that is now not just feasible, but actually quite likely. I'm curious to know, out of everything, in your opinion, what was the IRA missing when it came to the EV transition and the value chain writ large? And put in another way, what are some of the limiting factors that slow the impact of the IRA that it could have that maybe we wouldn't think about at first glance? So I was thinking about this because, for example, on the renewable energy side, there's a lot of incentives in the IRA for the construction of, say, wind turbines, which is really great, but that doesn't really factor in all the complications that come with the land requirements of building wind turbines, or as I mentioned, those critical minerals, building those processing plants. So are there similar issues that you see with what's set out in the IRA, at least for EVs? Permitting is the number one on the list, I have to believe. How we find opportunities to streamline permitting, I'll be very clear, because I'm speaking on behalf of industry, they're not looking to cut corners here, but to continue to do so in a way that allows to engage with communities, to be thoughtful about environmental impact, and to minimize that environmental impact while also allowing these projects to begin and to actually then start producing is 
going to be the limiting factor in much of what our goals would be to have a, that robust domestic supply chain here in North America versus have it continue to get developed elsewhere. So that's it for today's episode. Thank you so much, Nathan, for joining. You've brought some some really great perspectives and insights that are so crucial to our understanding of the future of the EV transition. And this just sounds like such an exciting time for both the US and Canada. So I'm looking forward to what comes next. So thank you. Yeah, thank you, Katie. It really is exciting times. Thanks for listening to Sustainability Leaders. This podcast is presented by BMO Financial Group. To access all the resources we discussed in today's episode and to see our other podcasts, visit us at bmo.com forward slash sustainability leaders. You can listen and subscribe free to our show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider, and we'll greatly appreciate a rating and review and any feedback that you might have. Our show and resources are produced with support from BMO's marketing team and Puddle Creative. Until next time, I'm Michael Torrance. Have a great week. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. This is not intended to serve as a complete analysis of every material fact regarding any company, industry, strategy, or security. This presentation may contain forward-looking statements. Investors are cautioned not to place undue reliance on such statements as actual results could vary. This presentation is for general information purposes only and does not constitute investment, legal, or tax advice, and is not intended as an endorsement of any specific investment product or service. Individual investors should consult with an investment, tax, and or legal professional about their personal situation. Past performance is not indicative of future results.